0: Well, in just about a month, many of us will find our way over towards Fort Arena and the parking lot area out there, and it'll be time for the South Texas Fair. And I want to take a picture from that and push it backwards to the late 19th, early 20th century to one of those phrases in our English language that is actually very American. Uh, most of, or many of the, those colloquialisms that we use to you know, kind of shorthand verbal stuff or meaning other things, uh, finds its way from the continent over this way, but uh, this is a uniquely American phrase, close but no cigar. And it grows actually, uh, most those who are in the know tell us that it grows out of a time in American history when county fairs and those Traveling carnivals and stuff would make their way across the countryside, and there would be those guys who were hawking wares on the side, those side games, you know? These days, you, you pay five bucks for three shots at an impossible-to-make hoop or try to knock bottles off of something, and if you win, you win an oversized stuffed animal that then you have to figure out what you're going to do with. Back in the old days, they gave substantive prizes, cigars. And so it would be the one who would almost but not quite make it through the hoop or almost not quite knock all of the bottles off of the stand, and you would hear the guy running that little deal as a way of drumming up business, close, but no cigar. I want to use that phrase today in a challenging way as it relates to your Christian faith. As a matter of fact, as we come to the passage today, if you have your Bibles, go with me to the book of John Uh, chapter 6, and we'll be there in just a few moments. But as we come to this, it, it seems like Jesus is saying close but no cigar. Essentially, Jesus is communicating a truth here that says a little bit of belief falls short. It's it's an interesting thing. As a matter of fact, I want to invite you to kind of buckle up today and put on your your defensive armor just a little bit. It's not that I'm going to be trying to hit you with stuff, but Jesus says some stuff here, and he does some stuff, and he takes positions here that uh, might well have gotten him kicked out of a Southern Baptist Convention seminary evangelism class. (laughs) It is now the fourth sign. John has laid out a, an approach in this gospel. It is very theological. It is very very much a moving from sign to sign, miracle to miracle approach that John uses here. And, and he's going to begin to intersperse in between these signs with some of these I am statements that Jesus made, and we'll circle back after we get all seven of the miracles in. Uh, but at this point, now we're in the fourth one. We're, that, we're halfway through, and Jesus well, since the last one where we left off last week, Jesus was in Jerusalem and he had healed somebody on the Sabbath and it torqued, pretty severely torqued the uh, religious leaders of Jerusalem and so they started, it says there, to, to persecute him, which also means to prosecute him and ultimately the, the events of the last sign that John records will culminate in Jesus being killed on a cross. Those, those people were serious about going after him. But now we, we do that geographical ping pong that it seems that John is, is uh, adopting here. And so no longer are we down in Jerusalem in the south, but now Jesus is back up around the Sea of Galilee. In that area where he's already done two of the three signs we've looked at, and the crowds now are beginning to press in on him. And matter of fact, we start reading in verse one, and we'll read a few verses here just to set the scene. And John says, chapter six, verse one And after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. And now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And with those four verses, John lays out the scenario for us. Jesus on the side of the Sea of Galilee up near Capernaum, in that that really kind of the headquarters of most of his ministry during his time here on earth. And he's stepping back into the sea of human need that seems to be everywhere. With this, it seems like it must be a great place for a pop quiz. You remember pop quizzes? Now, some of y'all are still in school. Some of you think you'll never get out. You might, you might not. Just keep trying, keep shooting. But I had a Greek professor when I was in college. And you just have to understand that in in college, the the major that I had, uh, we had to have... Uh, two full years of Greek, and the second year was advanced Greek, and so we had one professor for two whole years, and Dr. Howard had been doing it a long time. We weren't his first class of young, smart aleck preacher guys, and uh, so he had learned a few tricks of the trade, and so on the first day of the first semester of elementary Greek, Dr. Howard walks in and he says, okay, guys, here's the way we're going to do this. For two years, you will be mine." And you just need to plan every time you come to class, we will begin class with a pop quiz. All right, now, so just so you know, that's not a pop quiz. Already, that's a scheduled test is what that is, right? But he got in our heads with that. And after the first month of class where he proved that three times a week, every time he showed up, he was giving us a pop quiz. After the first month, some of our guys were well into the, I don't know if I can pass phase of the, of the class, And Dr. Howard came in, he said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Our class was at the top of the stairs of the second floor of the Bible building at Wayland Baptist University in Plainview. And so Dr. Howard said this, I will make my way from my office to our class, every class period, and when you hear me coming up the stairs, you need to be ready for a pop quiz. But because some of you are struggling, here's what I'm going to do for you. When I get to the top of the steps, I will take my Greek New Testament and I will toss it into the class. And if you can get to that Greek New Testament and throw it back out the door before I get into the door, no test that day. So effective was that that it totally rearranged the geography of the seating chart. All of the guys who were in the D stands for diploma Part of the course, began to gravitate towards the front door because they would kill themselves to get to the great New Testament and throw it back out. Testing is something that we typically don't like, and especially pop quizzes. As we work our way through this passage today, we're going to find that Jesus throws some pop quizzes out. I would even argue, and I'm not going to take the time to substantiate this today, but I think Jesus gets a little bit of a test in this also. If that scandalizes you a little bit, then go back and read the account of his testing in the wilderness when his ministry kicked off, and you'll find some parallels to what's happening here. Tests. They're part of the landscape of the Christian life, and Jesus, as it appears in this text, brings them for us sometimes. So here's the first instance, and this will take the majority of the time we have today, but I want to look at the tests that Jesus gives to his disciples here. One of the things that we have now run into is that when we come to look at John's gospel and these signs, these miracles that Jesus performs, they inevitably and invariably bring those witnesses to those miracles to a crisis point. In other words, when you are a witness of what God can do and does do in the life of people suddenly you have a choice to make what do i do with this jesus what 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 of this sign worker this miracle worker what what do i do with him if he can do that for someone who is ill then what does that mean to me And so Jesus is working his way through some of this, this crisis of belief that I've talked about before. Well, let's pick it up and we'll find. Verse five, we'll read through verse nine now. It says this, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, this is one of the 12 disciples. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Philip Leads the charge for those disciples who are satisfied with making a D in the course. He he gives an answer, but it just happens to be the answer to a question Jesus did not ask. Jesus said, where are we going to get this? How are we going to do this? And Philip defaults to, "Well, well, here's what we can't do. Philip was apparently the accountant of the group, the bean counter. Because he knows, as he does quick mental gymnastics, what we cannot afford here. Verse 8. Excuse me, verse 7. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii, that's basically 200 days worth of wages. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. In other words, if we had enough money for 200 days worth of labor with all of these people who are out here, uh, we still, everybody would get maybe a bite. It's not enough. So now we go to verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, I'll take a D also. Well, sort of. Verse 9 there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now that's a great start. He sees the supply, but then he jumps to a conclusion. But what are they for so many? And so Jesus now is confronted with these disciples who have been involved in the course. and they've seen three separate miracles now that nobody else could do. People ill, lame from birth, that Jesus stepped into the mix and did incredible things. It was a pointer to who Jesus was. And they were all uh, pushing this crisis of belief about, okay, so if Jesus can do that, what, what, is, what is my relationship with him to be? And these guys, I, I want to be fair to them. Because in reality, I am them. I want to be fair to them to say, well, you know, they haven't seen all that there was of Jesus. They're still relatively uh, early into this process of watching him and growing with him and, and following him. So I want to give them some credit here. But the problem with that is that Jesus clearly sees and his interest clearly goes beyond their comfort level. Here's why I say that. Think about what's happening here. Now, we, we all, I suppose that everybody in here knows this story, the feeding of the 5,000. We know this story. But I want to invite you to step back from it long enough and ask some really searching questions. A friend of mine years ago said this to me. As we were in a, a prayer meeting. We were doing a youth camp together, and, uh, and he said, you know, has, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? And so I smacked him. I, you know, know, no, never, I never really thought about that. But I want you to think through that. Do you think that Jesus was caught off guard with the fact that dinner time was rolling around here? You see, that's the part of the story that we don't always stop and and consider. This is not like this is a surprise to Jesus. He doesn't look around and go, oh my goodness, look at the time we should have brought supper. Jesus brings the test. Jesus sets up the test. Jesus is Dr. Howard to us. Every day, count on a test. That is a great synopsis of at least one element of the Christian life. You can count on every day having a test. What do you believe about Jesus? And so Jesus brings it to these disciples... It's not like it crept up on them, on him. He lays it out for them. It's a deliberate move to test them. And so now let's step back and go, okay, so why? Why would Jesus do that? Does he he always used to think, I I think I want to be a professor. Because if I can be the professor, then I'm going to give tests that nobody can pass. I'll give a test that will make you wish you never signed up for class. That's the way I thought. You know why? Because I had professors like that. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. Clearly, his motivation here is not to set his disciples up for failure. But what is his motivation? Why does he do this? How does this come about? Here, I got two quick—well, an- not quick. Okay, two answers that I'd like for us to look at. Here's the first one: uh, Tests promote self-awareness. These disciples needed to know where they stood as it related to what they believed about Jesus. It is easy, it is really easy for us to sit back and from a distance look at what God has done in other places and go, you know, those people should realize that. And we, we, we kind of make that nice and we, we fashion it to fit our nice little um, you know, social awareness kind of thing. Well, you know, those people, they, I don't know how they could not believe in Jesus, but they don't. Self-awareness is an incredibly important part of our daily life and part of the self-awareness that Jesus brings to this disciple group is that they don't yet understand how pervasive his power is and his involvement is in their lives and in the lives of other people. Oh sure, he's healed other people, but now he comes to me with the problem, how are we going to feed these people? I don't know the answer to that. And Jesus, I think, would say exactly. But I don't know is never a good answer, if it's your final answer. I used to say that to my kids. I'd catch them all the time, always catch them doing stuff wrong. What are you, do- what are you doing? I don't. I don't know. No, I don't know means I don't want to answer. Is what that means. And in this case, the answer here cannot be I don't know because they have enough that they're already working with. And so Jesus pushes it on them a little bit because he knows something about them that's true about us. And that is we love comfortable. We love comfortable. We have designed air conditioning systems inside buildings because we don't like to be uncomfortable. You're going to go out of this place into a vehicle, most of you, that is comfortable in the seating part. Well, we do that in here, okay? We used to have those old, you remember the old pews that didn't have any cushion on them? Just wood. I ain't going to church there. I like comfort. And so do you. Let's just call it what it is, right? But you see, that love for comfort, if we're not self-aware of that, that love for comfort will push us into a stagnant belief system. I did a little checking on this. Uh, I mentioned it in the first service. I thought I'd better go back and double check and make sure the facts are right. And according to the, uh, the Bible Speaks Today, which is a, quarterly or a, a publication of a number of years ago now, uh, they said this about eagles, that when a mother eagle and the father eagle are working on putting an e- a nest together, they'll go out and they get sticks. I mean, it's a great read to see the kind of stuff that they'll pull together for these nests. And some of those, these nests are huge for eagles. And so they pull them together and they'll include rocks and thorns and these sharp sticks and that kind of stuff and so lay the nest out that uh, that stuff is underneath it. But then they come in before they uh, have eggs and those eggs hatch into little baby eagles uh, and they'll line it with feathers and moss and uh, leaves and even some fur from animals they've killed and that kind of stuff to make it nice and plush and comfortable for the baby eagles. But when those eagles grow enough that the mama eagle knows that it's time for them to get out of the nest, she starts pulling all of that comfortable stuff out so that the eaglets, by the way, those of you with teenagers, pay close attention, (laughs) so that the eaglets will get uncomfortable in the nest enough to be willing to get out of the nest. What a great picture for us in spiritual truth. We love comfort. We love it so much. Hear me very carefully. Both ears. And I'm saying this in love. We love comfort so much that 90%, I'm guessing, of the prayer requests that you hear in a local church will be geared towards comfort. I just, I got this ingrown big toe. I guess the toenail would be ingrown, not the toe. That would be weird. And so we pepper our prayer lives with all kinds of discomfort-avoiding requests. Jesus knows that about you and me. And he knows that that level of belief, that very consumer-driven level of belief, is insufficient for us in the long run. Close but no cigar. And so he brings the test to them. That comfort that we so desire blocks growth. And Jesus brings tests so that we, he might unblock our growth potential. So before I move on, let me just stop and lay it at your feet here for a second, or toss it into your lap. How is it with you? Are you self-aware enough in your own spiritual life to know where you are right now on this comfort level thing? Maybe I'll make it a little easier to answer. Are you further along in your belief system with Jesus today than you were six weeks ago? Or six months ago? Or six years ago? This is the part that is strong is, is a real struggle for us because we live in a religious subculture. We su- surround ourselves with the trappings of Christianity. We have our nice little sayings and our bumper stickers, so to speak, and we love to go to church and hear our favorite songs sung, and we, when the choir blows it out of the water, it makes us feel good. But if that's the sum total of your belief with Jesus today, I can promise you that he's bringing a test to you because a consumer-driven belief is insufficient with him. Close, but no cigar. And just to finish the thought, this is how we tend. This is one of the reasons I say Jesus would have gotten kicked out of an evangelism class at a Southern Baptist seminary. This is how we sell evangelism to people. You want to go to heaven, don't you? You don't want to go to hell. You go to hell, you'll be smoking more, enjoying it less. You don't want to do that. You want to go to heaven. <laughs> and so we sell this comfortable Christianity that's geared towards he'll be good to you. He'll take care of you. You know, the, the, the insidious part of that is that that's True. It is good. You don't want to go to hell. I wouldn't want that of my worst enemy. So Jesus catches these disciples right in the midst of their own lack of self-awareness. Here's the other reason I think he does it. Because tests prepare us for more tests. Here's what Dr. Howard knew in my Greek class. He knew on day one that if he didn't force that class full of young preacher guys to learn New Testament Greek, he, if, we, he, if he didn't force that on us with those pop quizzes, we wouldn't study. Even the most driven of us would have found other things to do while at college than study. And so first day of class, he gives us this assignment to memorize the Greek alphabet. That's like 30 letters. Are you kidding? I got stuff to do. And so the next time we come to class, he tests us on the Greek alphabet. And the next time, on the Greek alphabet. You know why he tested us on the Greek alphabet? Because the first year of Greek had to learn the alphabet because when I got to the, second, the end of the second year of Greek and we were de- declining and we were... Uh, too, too technical. We were diagramming sentences in Greek. <laughs> Don't ask me to do that today. For the record. But if you don't learn the lesson on the basic level, you're not going to be ready for the lessons on the advanced level. And so, right back into our laps here. How is it? How long have you been at the level you're currently at with Jesus? I've asked two questions, they come as a unit. Do you believe in Jesus? And if so, how much do you believe in Jesus? Now Jesus is taking that idea and he's pushing these disciples because he knows that these disciples are going to need to have an advanced degree in belief before it's over with. Because in just a handful, not even a handful, a couple of years from now, they're going to find this same Jesus, the sign worker, is going to be hanging on a cross dead. Or at least it seems that way. What do you do when your God dies kind of stuff? My dad used to say it this way. If things are not going well for you and you're tired of the trials and the tests, cheer up, things are going to get worse. And he's right about that. It's going to get worse just because of the nature of life, but it's also going to get worse because God is going to see to it that tests come your way and my way that deepen our belief in him. Which pushes me to the second test that we find here. The first one was with the disciples, and they clearly um, were not prepared for what was coming. But Jesus was moving them definitively towards being ready. And so we pick up reading in verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. And now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And before we move forward and we'll get to the last couple of verses here in a minute, let's make sure that we stop, slow down a little bit here because this is the extraordinary part. Imagine being on that hillside to see that happen. Imagine if you're Philip, the one who had the wrong, or the right answer to the wrong question, to all of a sudden see what was just this little poor kids' lunch suddenly be enough to feed 5,000 men, and who knows how many women and children could have been with them. Not only did they get food, it says, that they all had their fill. Now, I've been to some Baptist lunch meetings. i me tell you something, food doesn't go very far for some of us. Imagine the scene on that hillside with all of that kind of stuff. And imagine what that did in the the minds of those disciples. Wow. He heals sick people, but he makes food go a long way. Extraordinary stuff, this Jesus. And so the reaction seems positive. Look at verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Prophet in my Bible is capitalized as it should be in yours also. This is one of those places where the crowd seems to be right, but in being right, they're dreadfully wrong. You see, they they get at least, there's probably room for a little bit of theological Uh, fine tuning here but they recognize that not just anybody can do what Jesus just did and so they see the hand of God on him and so they began to push it forward into that Jewish mindset that said there's a Messiah coming and when the Messiah comes we the elect, the chosen of God God's favorite people on all the planet, that's Old Testament when that guy comes we're all going to Rise to the top, and this Roman occupying force is going to be pushed to the side, and we Jews are going to be number one from this point on. Now, this is about the people, but let me just throw the disciples back into this because one of the tests that they get in this here is is on this very point because if Jesus is, in fact, that guy, the Messiah who's going to right all the wrongs and elevate the Jews to the rightful place... These guys stand to benefit, big time from that, because they're his chosen group. And so they seem to be sort of right in this. It seems like they're on point with this, but Jesus knows better. Look at verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Here's a good truth for us. Consumer-based belief moves us to mistaken behavior. If my belief about Jesus stops at the point of, hey, he's good for me, I benefit from being with him. If my belief in him goes no further than, hey, I get good stuff out of this relationship, that moves me to act in ways that's not healthy at all. Because that perspective essentially puts me in position to say, if like these people, if he can do that for us, feed us when we're hungry, if he can do that for us, then all we need to do is make him king and then we'll get him to do everything else we want. In other words, that level of belief sets us up to act like we're God and he's the delivery boy. Oh, we're eating up with that. Now, I love you and all that stuff, but I'm just going to tell you straight. You're eating up with that. That's the sin nature in us. That, that part that says, I'll be in charge. I'm, after all, nobody's as smart as I am. Now, no, none of us would say that. But it goes to our heads, doesn't it? You're driving into town, going to work, and some knucklehead didn't read the same driver's ed manual you read, and you, okay, I want to show them the way of the Lord <laughs> because I know better right so the tests for them is such that Jesus says if that's all you expect from me I'm out <laughs> what this... he'd never make it in my evangelism classes I'm out if all you want is for me to feed you Close but no cigar. Man, that's a, that's a troubling kind of passage for me. And if that's not enough, and I'm not have time, I don't have time, and I'm not going to take the time to go digging into the rest of this stuff, but we get it from this point forward in this particular chapter, and Jesus just bears down on drawing the distinctions By the time we get to the end of this, and I am going to read it a little bit, uh, Spencer, I'll be in verse 66 and then a little bit after that uh, in just a moment. But before we get there, let me just kind of set the scene for you. Jesus is going to go in now, and the scene changes a little bit. He sends his disciples on. He comes walking on the water. You remember that story? We'll get to that. Uh, But then he has this discussion towards the end of chapter 6 with people, and Jesus starts talking to them in ways that seems aggressive. All of these followers of his, and he starts saying things like, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have any part of me. What? What? And in a telling statement, John records that the people responded to that statement from Jesus saying, this is a difficult saying, who can accept this? Uh, Yeah, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And then it says that many turned and followed him no more. It wasn't an accident. Jesus took that to them, and he forced a crisis of belief. What do you believe about Jesus? And how much do you believe it? Because he's not any different Yes, the same yesterday, today, and forever. This Jesus that we find here still comes to us and says, I offer you life. It will blow your mind, the life that I offer you. But it is an all-in proposition. We know that. Go with me now, verse 66. Referred to this a little bit. We'll pick up from there in just a second. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It's tragic, but here, you know what we find today in five hours or so, about 100 miles from here, not really even 100, I don't think, in a little piece of property that's 100 yards long and 50 yards wide, the attention of the nation is going to go down onto about 90 guys who are going to play a football game. It's the Super Bowl. And there are going to be parties all over the place. Some of our Sunday school classes are having parties and all that kind of stuff. Um, And people are going to, I mean, some of us great athletes are going to wear our jerseys to the parties. (laughs) By the way, the jersey that you own, that team's not playing, just so you know. (laughs) You know one thing about fans? Fans are fickle. That word fickle, we, Teresa reminded me today, we don't use that word very much. It means uh, they're not real consistent. As long as our team, whoever our team happens to be, is uh, blowing and going on seven-week win streak, you let them lose two in a row and all of a sudden we need, we need a new coach, we need a new quarterback, we need, fans are fickle. Nobody knows that better than Jesus does. And the people in this story who would move to make him king because he brought lunch. Now turn and follow him no more because he makes demands. But you see, that's the nature of him being God. He gets to make demands on us. And so following from verse 66, we pick up in verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Simon Peter suddenly jumps from I believe to I know. And his knowledge and his belief now is not at the point of can Jesus heal or can Jesus bring lunch... Now, his knowledge is at the point of identity. I know that you are God in the flesh. It's a high point in John's gospel, that verse. And it'll be the high point in your life because when you come to the point that you can say, okay, I, I, pr- I appreciate the comfort level that Jesus brings to me and all this stuff that he brings to me, but now I move beyond just the consumer part of that to the identity acknowledgement that says, you are God and I'm not. And the only possible response to that is, I bow my knee so that you may have your way with me. How is it with you and this Jesus? Let's pray. And as we pray, I would invite you to do business with that same Jesus who even now, through his spirit, whispers deep into who you are the fundamental question, what are you going to do with me? Because now you see you're at that crisis of belief. What do you do with this Jesus? If he is who he said he is, you have to respond to that. Do you know him as your savior? Have you surrendered to him as king of kings in your life? If not, that's the invitation for you now. If you don't know what that means and what that looks like, I'll be down front here. We have others who would be happy to talk with you. We, we're not going to put you on the spot or try to talk you into anything like that. Uh, you know, you would just try to answer your questions and help you understand some things. But if you don't know Jesus in a personal way, then I would say this, this would be the best decision of your entire life. So don't walk out without making it. Many of us know Jesus is our Savior, but we've settled for this infantile belief That is all about me and getting my needs met and being comfortable. And this Jesus, who is the King of Kings, waits for us to let him be king in our lives. Why don't you let him be? Father, we ask that you take this time and glorify your name and change lives. Amen.